Welcome to Doing Virtue, the Catholic Podcast, where virtue is what we do. My name is Anthony Christ. I'm here tonight with Brian Hicks and Mark LaRochelle in the house. We also have a special guest of honor, Dr. Andrew Whitmore from Christendom College. Dr. Whitmore received his BA from Assumption College and his MA and PhD from the Catholic University of America. He's a husband and father and a beloved professor of theology at Christendom College. He has taught a long, extensive list of theological classes, but a few include moral theology, bioethics, Christology, and a class on grace. Most recently, he published a book called Saintly Habits, Aquinas' Seven Simple Strategies You Can Use to Grow in Virtue, and that was published by Ascension Press. Dr. Whitmore, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me to be here. Um, not be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a pleasure to have you in the house. Um, so we, the, the name of this podcast is Doing Virtue, and uh, we had one other Christendom professor on, Dr. Wunsch, who teaches a class on virtue, but we decided to up the game a little bit because we wanted to have a Christendom professor who not only teaches about virtue, but actually wrote a book on it because people say that if you write a book on something, you're a professional. So we're, we're kind of expecting <laughs> the best. Um, and really, whatever you say tonight is, is what goes in terms of the virtuous life. So no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So tonight, uh, we'll just go ahead and review. Um, on the show, we like to have a drink. Uh, drinking in moderation is a virtue. Um, and we'd like to uh, just enjoy the good things that we have. So tonight, Brian brought a whiskey for us to enjoy, and he is going to give a little rundown on that before we get things rolling. Well, it is Highland Park 12-year. Um, it is a single malt scotch whiskey. And the best thing I th- think about, well, actually, no, it does taste very good. I've tried this before. It does, the, the whiskey itself does taste pretty good, but the, the bottle itself is really cool. It's got, like, Viking designs on it. Um which is pretty neat, but um, good bottle score. Yeah, exactly. Um, much more than that. I mean, we can. Why don't we just try it and then we'll sure. Um. Doctor Whitmore, do you have a whiskey of choice? I don't. Want? Um, I like pretty much anyone I've tried. No, so. Okay. Yeah. Do you like any other drink more than whiskey? Red or? wine is my drink. Mm. Okay. Cabernet. Okay. Anthony, why didn't you this get past, us red wine? This past week we. Um, some people at the house, uh, Thomas Egan, uh, he had people over and we were doing wine tasting. Uh, and that was the first time I ever did that. Wine is, uh, I'm, I'm still getting around to, to trying wine and knowing what that, is. I don't know what that's like, but I don't know. But oh cheers, everyone. Cheers. cheers. Oh, we're, doing, we're doing the dinks. Tastes like Viking. <laughs> I totally agree. That's what I was going to say. I think that's actually... You know, I, I also was going to say that, but now I feel like it's just a moot point. Um, well, just one of the things about the um, the tasting notes, it, it is kind of... A lot of the time, whenever I try whiskey, the tasting notes are one of those things that I'm like, yeah, sounds great, but I don't really quite... I don't know. I'll just tell them. Uh, one of them is sun-kissed oranges and... Rich fruitcake spiced with cinnamon, nutmeg, and cloves. And then it's a little smoky. Cloves? Just... Yeah. Not cloves. 
but cloves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know it, it is. It is actually surprisingly spicy. I didn't think yeah. it was going to be as peppery. Yeah. No, but, but I like it. I think it's, it's good. I, what, what does this cost? Um, it was. I think it was only forty, fifty bucks. Yeah, yeah. that's a pretty good deal. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of flavor. I was expecting for that price. I would have expected that it would wouldn't taste as good as it does. Right. Right. right, right and I do right. like the bottle. It's a yeah. kind of a cool. It's neat that not very many bottles have this like etching in the glass. Right. Like it'll have a label or it'll have something neat on the top, but this actually has etching on the front and back. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think that was when I bought that. That was actually part of the reason why I bought it. Nice. Yeah. Bottle just, just looks cool. No, just look for the bottle. Yeah. Sometimes if you look and you just go strictly on like I'm gonna stick to a thirty or forty dollar limit and then you just pick the coolest bottle. Sometimes you can't go wrong because yeah. at that price they're probably gonna taste fairly the same. Right. And then you, if you have a sweet bottle, like yeah, there's there's lots of different bottle types. I'm a fan of of uh, cool bottles. Yeah. Uh, so something else that we do on the show, which we were talking about right beforehand, <clears throat> but. I'll just mention again, uh, after having a drink, before we get into the topic of the evening or before we interview whatever guest of honor we have, uh, we either will discuss a saint of the day or um, I, like a poem, uh, an article, something like that. So Mark has a little something for us tonight. Hopefully it exceeds my expectations because he's put a lot of planning into this. So, <laughs> Yeah, I have many, many moons. I have thought about this. Um, no, I actually, there are some uh, facts that I didn't know about the church, actually, that not not super theological-based, uh, but more just kind of weird things that I didn't know. Um, the Catholic Church spends more money than Apple brings in, uh, mainly from uh, charity work, uh, and it exceeded $170 billion in 2012 is like the one that they have recorded here whereas wow. apple in that same year took in 157 billion dollars in revenue so uh good on the church for being That's crazy. charitable i mean no yeah um she spends more than apple makes but does she also take in right so right, yeah, right, right right i think this is a pro this right. is a pro catholic <laughs> article here yeah, that was part um, of the you know it's part of the like the united states budget we just spend way more than we actually have so we'll just right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> they have so much money yeah, right. uh and about 15 percent of all hospitals in the united states are catholic hospitals um which in some parts of the world uh the catholic church only is the only provider of healthcare, education, and so social services to people. I assume that is in third world countries. In my, I would assume that. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably true. Yeah. The uh, official—I don't know if it's official—but the saints that are recognized by the Catholic Church is up to uh, over ten thousand, like officially recognized by the Church, canonized. Um, so, so I thought that was like interesting. servants of God are blessed. Yeah, I think just just saints, just saints which is crazy because I, I I know you know a fraction, a very small fraction of that, and people constantly are saying, yeah, yeah, I know the saint, I know that saint. I was like, I haven't yeah. heard of that saint before, right. but I'm sure I'm sure they were great people. I, I, honestly, that number seems low. Like right? if you think about ten thousand names and stories, that's a lot. But yeah, that honestly that, honestly is a little bit disappointing that there's only ten thousand. I agree. I wonder if that includes the, you know, the and companions, mm. so and so and companions. Does that include the companions or not? I wonder. Oh yeah. Because yeah. it, it also, I could be wrong, but it seems like recently the church had, like especially Francis, has done so and so and his thirty-five friends, and you're like, okay, I don't even remember. <laughs> like again, I can't even think of someone's name. Right. And he had thirty friends that were all like 
martyred or persecuted or something and they're all canonized and yeah. i'm sure we have the list of those names but i i couldn't name them right that there should be also- eventually what we get out of christendom right so and so and their 50 friends like class let's go maybe a professor in there every once in a while like him and his students <laughs> in this particular year in this particular <laughs> right. time yeah, uh funny. the swiss papal garden is the i'm sure we heard this in rome at some point but i completely forgot about it is the oldest active military unit in existence since 1506 so that's pretty cool wow um and then a couple facts about aquinas because why not um he was and i don't know if any of you knew that he had a lifelong fear of storms because his uh sister was killed by lightning when they were both taking a nap in the same room which is kind of crazy wow and he also had terrible handwriting (coughs) it's uh called in latin the litera inintelligibilis jibilis i'm I haven't taken Latin. <laughs> How would you pronounce that? The intelligible letter. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are so those are some huh. of the facts that I have about. I always wonder with saint stories. <clears throat> it's probably just the skeptic in me, but I always wonder how much of them are true and how much of it is like things that people want to be true. And I think Trent Horn wrote a book on like sayings the saints didn't say, or mm-hmm. or it's at least like we're not sure which saint said this because right. it seems like a lot of Catholics will be like, okay, pray, hope, and don't worry. It's St. Padre Pio. It's John Vianney. No, no, no. It's actually, and, and I, I assume one of them said it and somewhere along the line, someone got it wrong and it's misattributed. But with, with things like that, like they they were perpetually afraid of this or they were, I don't know, some other, either a fault or something like a habit that we, or even just a story that we attribute to them. I hope it's true because usually it's a story about something totally awesome like a miracle that they did but then you're like i don't want to so i don't want to doubt it because i believe god could have worked through them in this way but also i can totally see how someone just ran with it like oh yeah saint anthony he found this item and then now all of a sudden he became that like okay is that actually i don't know it i don't want to question the validity of it but sometimes it seems so off the off the chart that you're kind of like huh it's a little weird even yeah. in this life, people say things and people hear it and they just kind of take it and run. So, mm-hmm. like, for all we know, if you had one conversation, she was like, oh, yeah, you know, storms, I just, they make me remember when my sister died. And they're like, oh, Aquinas is definitely <laughs> afraid of storms. Yeah. And then it evolved into, and oh, patron saint of storms. Died, and that's why he mm-hmm. yeah, died from this, this thunderstorm. Yeah, 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 no, true. Yeah, it's like the game of telephone. Mm-hmm. Just keeps going. I actually want to. I think century before phones existed, so it was kind of weird when they were playing it because they weren't really sure what it was called. Like a telephone. Yeah. Um, I always thought that it would be fun uh, to have an episode or at least do like extensive research on um, either sayings the saints didn't or like did or didn't say, Mm -hmm. and then also look into why a saint is the patron of whatever thing. Some of it's really right. obvious, like St. Lawrence, patron of cooking, patron of comedians. It makes sense. It's it's like to completely appropriate. Thomas Aquinas, like saint of studying or writing. And then you get these other saints, you're like, how do they get stuck with that and that? Like it doesn't, It there doesn't seem to be any correlation to their life. It seems to be randomly assigned, but it's universally accepted. Right. Seems a little weird. Well, some, one of the things, I think it was St. Dennis. Um, I, I think... I don't know why I was, I was looking at uh, or like looking him up on online, but I'm pretty sure. So uh, toward the end of it, or I mean, 
really at the end of his life, he uh, he was beheaded. Right. And then he picked up his head and walked for. And then he said a sermon, didn't he? Yeah, he was still he was still <laughs> preaching. Right, right. But I'm pretty sure one of the patrons, like he's one of the patron saints of throats. Mm. So it's like it, like Along sometimes with Saint Blaise. Yeah, I so I don't I think I was actually thinking about this the other day. I think Saint Blaise's like throat diseases. Okay. But although I guess I don't know if you would say I feel like if you're praying to someone Sounds like for a your stiff throat, competition it's for who wants necks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean kind of. I mean I don't I don't I I think neck there is neck. another I think there is another uh there are probably other th- saints that that have that opinion. But it was just, sure, it was yeah. just interesting. But it, like yeah. he's a, he most definitely <clears throat> had that because that's where they chop his head off. But right. I don't know. Yeah, that's really Anyways, cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, Mark. Those were topic provoking and thanks. Not really thought provoking, but <laughs> topic provoking. Okay. Uh, so, Dr. Whitmore, I I'm actually genuinely curious about a couple of the next questions I'm going to ask you because I just don't know. And you may have told us the first day of classes, but I don't remember. So, just for a refresher for either those listening or for the benefit of us three here, um, where where are you from originally? And um, I know you're married, so how long have you been married? How many kids do you have? Like, just give us a little bit of a, a background, maybe in, uh, yeah, just a little bit of a background would be great. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to undergraduate in Massachusetts. My wife's from Shannon. She's from New Jersey and uh, usually Bostonians <laughs> and, you know, around New York. She's right outside New York. So usually when it comes to sports, they don't get along, but uh, we made it work or we're making it work. <laughs> Eight years in, we got married in 2015 on the vigil of Pentecost, the vigil of um, Mary Help of Christians, which my wife was actually, she discerned with the Salesians for a year and that's wow. their patron. And uh, it just happened that way, and and on her parents' anniversary as well. So wow. it was just like <laughs> that's awesome. wasn't planned. Yeah, exactly three hundred days from our engagement. Like there's just a lot of cool stuff going on there. But anyway, um, we have two kids, John and Felicity, and uh, I just made my way down um, to DC for graduate school, and then that's where I first heard about Christendom. I didn't know about it in Massachusetts. Um, now people up there know about it because mm. when I really? go back home or you know, when I go back to where I was from and talk to people like, oh yeah, we've heard about Christendom. Uh, a lot of some priests up there, they know it well. Um, but that's where I first learned I met some people who graduated. So did you go to, you uh, went to CUA yeah. for yeah. your doctorate? Yeah, I went to Catholic University for master's and PhD. My wife was at the John Paul II Institute. Oh, okay. So mm. that's where we met. Awesome. Okay, sweet. Thanks. So did you... When you went to school at CUA, was your plan to go right into teaching, or were you more interested in the education, and then teaching was like a, a possibility, but not a necessity? Yeah, what it was from the start, the plan was teaching theology, but I, I, don't, I don't, I guess I'll call it providence, right? But I sometimes wonder if I was just naive, too. So going into college, I went in as an English major, and that was after deciding I didn't want to do architecture. Because I was looking, I loved, I had the nice problem of liking almost every subject. <laughs> um, history is my weak one. But um, I, I went to some of the design schools, and I was looking at, on, on a Saturday, looking at the students, and their hair is all disheveled and bloodshot eyes. I'm like, how long have you been here? I'm like, all night. I was like, I don't want to do this architecture stuff. <laughs> Little did I know that that's just, that's just every subject, right? Especially <laughs> in the end of grad school. But I switched to English, so I went in as an English major, and... Um, Switched to theology, I think my sophomore year, I had my reversion. I'm a cradle Catholic, um, but I stopped kind of going to mass during high school, and my reversion happened 
kind of the winter break of sophomore year of undergrad. But that first semester, we had a class just called The Bible, and it was on Very the specific. whole Bible. Yeah. <laughs> and I just said, you know, I've always wanted to read this, so let's start. Genesis 1. And just worked my way oh, through. Man. It took, I think I finished junior year. Um, I just went from front to back, which everyone says is the worst way to read the Bible. <laughs> just immediately, just like, oh, all these great stories, and then genealogies <laughs> for <days>. <laughs> Deuteronomy. <laughs> but that's where I really fell in love with it. And the, my favorite professor, my mentor there, he was a moral theologian. So I was kind of like, I got interested in moral theology. And he, his expertise was sexual ethics. Mm. So I kind of coming out of my undergrad, there were actually like some classes that I'd never taken. Like I never took a Christology class mm. in undergrad. The core wasn't as big as Christendom. So there's a lot of things that fell through the cracks. And I just came out of it kind of thinking like, well, theology is moral theology, and moral theology is sexual ethics. So I go into the master's planning to be a, a professor of sexual ethics, I mm. guess. Um, you I came out of undergrad thinking like, yeah, I got this. I understand theology. And then the master's was this whole like awakening of like, oh, my gosh, there's so much I don't know. Mm. And I did well. But the whole time I felt like I was treading water because it's just like, I don't know this, and I don't know this. And look, and here's more that I don't know. Mm. Um, but I did my, my master's thesis on John Paul II's thought, the eschatological dimension of marriage. Mm. And that was, again, uh, it was this whole like sexual ethics thing. Okay, yep. I'm going to write about marriage. And it was good. I, I, I really liked John Paul II, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't fully clicking. And it was really hard for me to write the thesis. Mm. And I applied for the PhD. I got accepted right away, but I didn't get funded. So I, I took a year off to reapply to see if I get funding the next year because I already had so much debt from the masters I didn't want to add more <laughs> sure. to it and um, so I worked during that year but during that year I, I was finishing my thesis and I was kind of just looking at different things just like well, well maybe maybe uh, virtue ethics and Aquinas mm. and and then uh, you know I entered the PhD with that in mind and, and then it like everything clicked somehow in that year like it fit together I was like yeah I don't know everything but I can do this and mm. now I see how it fits together and I know how I can go going forward, and I just loved it, right? That was clearly where my passion was. But actually, to answer your original question, so um, as an undergrad, talking to my advisor, he's like, well, there's really not, you know, in theology, if you want to go into that, you can do a lot of different things, but they don't all pay well. If you want to be able to support your family, like one of the best ways is to become a professor. So it's like, all right, that's what I'll do. Mm. And it's really only in hindsight that I kind of see like, whoa, how lucky I was and like mm -hmm. with all the, the my uh, classmates that I graduated with and I was I think the only one to get a job the year I graduated oh, finishing wow. my dissertation oh. others got jobs like in the next year or two yeah. others just left and they, like some one became an editor um, wow. one became a liturgy director in a diocese one got a job a long time later but like in a really far away place and now, I had like kind of survivor's guilt for a while. Mm -hmm. like, wow, am I the only one? Mm -hmm. um, but that was at Christendom, and right. it's been amazing. So, was your first? Did you? Uh, was your first teaching job at Christendom, or I did teaching at CUA. Okay, that was part of um, the funding package. Was right. they would okay. teach you how to teach, and then you would right. be a teaching assistant. So I, I taught uh, four or five classes, I think, while I was there. Whoa. Wow. So that helped a lot, and mm -hmm. that helped with getting the job because I already had that experience. I had the reviews. Um, was it all under it was all undergrad, undergrad yeah what uh what's the difference level between 
you teaching at Christendom and you teaching at CUA, like students and whatnot. Yeah, I know this podcast is going out to everybody. So <laughs> <shouldn't> be, uh, <laughs> too much detail, but what I'll say is that you can definitely tell that Christendom's got a, a bigger core. Mm. Mm. Um, moral theology is junior year at Christendom at CUA. I think you know it could be sophomore. I don't remember if some freshmen were in it as well, but you couldn't take for granted that they had already had Nicomachean ethics before it. So I actually spent a lot of time kind of going through just philosophical ethics Mm. before you even get to grace and theology. Whereas a Christian, you just first day hit the ground running with theology. And so when you were teaching that, did you, that was a part of the, like the funding package. So you, you were the professor? Yeah. Or, okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that was like kind of, they just kind of left you in and you're like, Three to the wolves I mean, a little obviously, bit. <laughs> obviously, you're going towards a PhD, so they have faith in you. So that that's. But is that that's kind of what it was? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's teaching being a college professor is kind of weird. Not at Christendom because we emphasize teaching so much, right? That's that's highly valued. But CUA is a much bigger university, and research is kind of the. I mean, obviously, teaching is important to them, but you'll find that you'll get some professors that are fantastic researchers just brilliant minds but like can't teach their way out of a paper mm-hmm. bag mm-hmm. and then right you've got others so actually in a lot of student evaluations students sometimes like the teaching assistants better than the real professors really wow um, because, do you think maybe that because was because they were trying more probably they're Almost. trying more and they're not burnt out or jaded or anything yet <laughs> um, they haven't lost hope in humanity yeah that could be um, but not to say like we're all experts or anything like that at the beginning, but, uh, yeah, it is kind of being thrown in the deep end and you just learn your way. Right. And there's a lot of mistakes I made and I'm thankful I got those out of the way before I got my full time <laughs> job. So did you, did you directly ap- apply to Christendom or were you applying to a bunch of different places and interviewing at different places and you decided to go with Christendom? Was it someone that you knew? It's like, it's, I was talking to Dr. Viner the other weekend and uh, like he came to Christendom because of. Dr. Sakonikis, because he knew him from uh, from the JP2 Institute in Australia. So I guess... No, I didn't know anybody at Christendom. I When I was applying for jobs, I applied for a bunch of jobs. Um, I, I was saying to my wife that, you know, i got to apply to a lot of different places because the market's not that great. Mm. Wherever there's an opening, there's an opening. My mom always wanted... Her dream is for me to be teaching at my undergrad. I was like, there's no opening. Uh, like, mm. If there's no opening, there's no opening. But my wife's like... Well, these are the parameters of like where I will live. <laughs> so you have to apply to colleges within this area. It's like, all right. So I applied to a bunch. I got some interviews. There's usually multi steps, right? right. You'll have like a, a phone interview and then a Skype interview and then uh, an on site interview. Um, but Christendom didn't do that, at least this time around. It was just the on site. And when mm. I saw the opening, it was in Thomistic moral theology. Mm. Wow. Exactly mm-hmm. what I studied. So right. I better at least get an interview. Yeah. And, um, I got the job, right? So um, we came on. It was a two-day interview. Um, and now it's even more extensive than it used to be because more people have been hired. Mm. So back then it was an interview with, like, the president, the vice president, the vice president of academics, um, and then everyone in the department. But the department yeah. only had three people at the time. Really? And now our department has six people. So right. now there's more interviews. For yeah. People yeah, yeah. getting hired now. Right. But it was, it was really good because over the two days you get a sense, like, do, is this a good fit for you and they get a sense are you a good fit for us um but of all the places i applied to it made my choice easy because it was the only one that i got accepted to but it was the one that i wanted the most awesome wow, that's amazing it, it, same thing with uh, the phd i applied to a bunch of different schools and the first time around cua was the only one that accepted me the second time around ave did as well um but it, it's one of those things where that's not so bad it makes your decision easy 
Was there a reason why uh, Christendom was like your your number one choice, other than that you had heard about it from CUA? I mean, going through the process is what made it the number one. Okay. I didn't know too much about it beforehand. Um, I guess my number one before that was one in New Jersey because we were thinking, oh, that'll be close to my wife's family right. and that'll make life easier. Turns out that they moved to where we are. So oh, nice. Oh, wow. It helped anyway. Yeah, right. um, but yeah, I was really just going through that process like, wow. You know, I always wanted, I said, I always wanted to teach at an Orthodox Catholic mm-hmm. college that is um, small and focuses on teaching rather than publishing. Mm where I can be kind of unknown to the world. <laughs> and so I got all three originally, but now I've got a book out and a lot of podcasts, so I don't know how much longer the third will last. That's an intentional choice, though. So. <laughs> <clears throat> the fame is catching up with you. Um, so when you first started at Christendom, did you just start with core classes, or did they say, like, let's go right into ethics? Like, that's your specialty, let's roll. So ethics is part of the core, which made it easy. I started right off with our Doctrine 101 and Moral Theology. So that's all core, and mm-hmm. I did 102 and Apologetics. But then I think the very next year, I already got into an elective on bioethics because I had taught it. Right. I was a teaching assistant for it, and I taught it at CUA. When I taught at CUA, it was two nursing students. So imagine your first time teaching bioethics, you're teaching it two nursing students. <laughs> and then you have Australian exchange students in it as well. Oh, the class man. is kind of split half and half, like half faithful believers and half um, like non-believers but one of the things that struck me was that the non-believers were better at arguing than the believers were so I spent a lot of time kind of like adjudicating between them and saying no 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 like this is what they're saying this is what you're saying this is what you have to address but I think it was skills that have served me Hmm. going through that experience is bioethics something that you asked to teach then or was that they knew that that was in your background and they asked you to teach it I forget how it started exactly, but okay. I, I, I had done it before, and there was a need for some reason to teach it. And um, so I was like, yeah, I mean, they're hesitant. Usually it's like the first couple of years we want to keep you with the same courses because writing a new course, is, that's a lot of prep work. Um, but I said I already taught it once, and I can adapt it and nice. took it on. And I think I've taught it three times here now. I, yeah, I remember, I think, our senior year. I want to say that was probably the first semester that you taught it because I don't remember it being – unless – when we were in Rome, that might have been... The first semester was the COVID year. Okay, then yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that, actually. Maybe it was just... We probably just didn't hear because we weren't even looking at... Right, 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 right. Because, right. we, yeah, we didn't sign up for classes the normal way. Right. Because we were just assigned. Right. We all had the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wait, so in... Were you... That was my you, second year was the COVID year. So you came in with us. So you were... You were like freshman year was our freshman year almost. Because uh, we graduated in 2022. Right. So was your first semester fall 2019? Oh, no, that was t- yeah, 2018. No, 2018. Oh, sorry, yeah. It was yeah. fall 2018. Yeah, it was okay, fall. Okay, that was yeah, mine too. Okay, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were, okay. we were freshmen. I don't know why I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, my, my first semester was fall 2018. Okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, remember. I, I, I thought that that was the case because I remember you and Dr. Viner getting hired mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. And I yeah. thought that was freshman year, but it, it could have been sophomore, right. but freshman year makes sense. Yeah, I remember I didn't have, I think I had Dr. Janislawski for 101, but I heard just great reviews from, from about you and about Dr. Viner uh, from my peers. And yeah. I needed to get one of you yeah. the next semester. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. So what brought about the writing of your book if you if you were wanting to stay a professor in private life and like was it just something where you felt like 
I'm teaching the class, but I kind of I need to I need to flesh it out more, or it needs to be a little bit more like I don't know, like solidified in a book. Is that how it came about, or was there a paper? Like what what kind of brought you to the point where you decided to write a book? It was kind of a reluctant book. <laughs> um, my dissertation was St. Thomas Aquinas and understanding the distinction between dispositions and habits. Now understanding that informs how do we grow in virtue. And I had planned to publish it in an academic press, just, you know, touch up the dissertation and release it that way. Um, but again, my, my passion was in teaching and we have a lot of classes to teach. And it was just kept, it was one of those things you just keep pushing it back, put it on the mm. back burner. But I had done that for so many years that actually other academics had started publishing books covering the material that I covered uh. and even going a little further with it. So it took the wind out of my sails a bit and I was like, all right, well, there's still other work I can do and, or maybe I'll go in a different direction. But it, the book idea then happened because I was up in Massachusetts visiting family and talking to some of my, my mom's friends and they were like asking about my dissertation. I'm explaining, they're like, oh, that's so interesting. I'm like, really? Like, you think that? I mean, I think it's interesting. But, like, you want to know about dispositions and habits and all that? And they're like, oh, yeah, virtue. Like, you know, it'd be so cool to know so much more about it. And so I was like, oh, they're just being polite. and Didn't really think too much of it. And then, like, later in the week or when I went home or whatever, I was like, maybe I, maybe I could. Because my original, my original dream when I was in the master's degree was I don't want to do, like, all this super academic stuff. I want to make that stuff palatable to other people. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to make it easy to understand and um, kind of like C.S. Lewis, probably not as good as him, but, you know, like that sort of idea, take the complex ideas and make it understandable to everybody. So that's what I want to do is in the master's, but when I get to the Ph.D., they emphasize so much articles and you know academic books mm -hmm. and all that that i kind of left that behind mm -hmm. but after she made that comment i was thinking i was like oh you know maybe maybe i should go back to that and then a few days later i get like out of the blue somebody i know who was working at ascension press saying hey do you know anybody who wants to publish a book oh my gosh oh my gosh like, <laughs> <laughs> God, let me think dr. about viner it. yeah i think dr <laughs> viner has a really good book he wants to publish <laughs> go for it wow so, that's amazing so i, I wrote up um like a first chapter and an outline, detailed outline, and, and sent it to them. And I think it took almost a year. I don't know. Whoa. It was a long time, maybe six months. I can't remember until I heard back. It was long enough that I was like, ah, oh, you know, mm, they're not going yeah. to take it. And then, you know, they called me up and said, oh, yeah, we want to publish it. And right, here's what we can give you. And it's like, money, right? Uh, you don't get paid for anything when you publish academically. So it's like, oh, I didn't. They're kind of like sheepish about how much it was. And it's like, I'll take anything. Um, <laughs> But then they're like, but, but also keep your, your schedule open in the fall because you're, we're going to have you do a lot of interviews. And I almost backed out at that point. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because remember, I want to be unknown. Right, 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 right. It's just like, oh my gosh, like I got to, now I've been doing it and it, it's a great time. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, it's like, oh, should I, should I not? But I'm glad I did. Sure. Man. Wait, so, okay, so, and, and this will probably go straight into your book, but you were talking about your dissertation, Habits and Dispositions. Uh very, I guess, uh, I guess in a nutshell, can you elaborate just, I guess, the difference? Because I feel like, was it the definition of virtue or... See, Brian, if you if you read this, you, you would know. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Well, well okay, that's what I'm saying. Maybe it'll, it'll go straight into the book. But I'm just, because it would almost, whenever I would think of a habit and stable disposition, I think of the same thing. Or I, I, would, I would equate mm. them. So maybe they are very similar, but... 
Well, habit would be a stable disposition. So the okay. usual mm-hmm. definition they give is a stable and habitual disposition to do the good that makes its possessor good. But the key there is they're saying it's a stable disposition. Hmm. The, the key difference is a disposition is easy to change. A habit is difficult to change. Hmm. So in general, disposition or habit, we're talking about some aspect of a person's character and um, basically an inclination. So a disposition is a inclination that's easy to change. A habit is an inclination that's difficult to change. Why is it difficult? Well, that's what the dissertation is about. But basically, um, just be real brief, a disposition for Aquinas is, um, it could be like a bodily disposition, meaning people who are bigger tend to be just naturally braver. People who are smaller tend to be more naturally timid. But that's something you can overcome. Um, So bodies can lead to disposition, like your bodily makeup, maybe your natural temperament. But then any act whatsoever creates a disposition in you. Anytime you choose something, you're more likely to choose that again. Mm. If, you're, if you've never lied, you're an honest person, but that first time you lie, it's so much easier to lie the second mm. time. Mm. So it just inclines you to act in that way. But it doesn't become a habit until it's stable. And so the way that it becomes habitual is when basically reason has permeated your will, your sensitive appetites, you know, your emotions and all that. Um, basically, you're, you're convinced of what you're doing is good. And you're so convinced of it, right, that you've kind of brought the rest of your capacities on board, mm-hmm. and now it becomes an ingrained character trait. Man. Okay. Sounds good. Can I ask, uh, can that be um, perverted? Can that be reversed to where you have a, more of a disposition to do um, morally uh, bad things, um, and then it becomes a habitual thing? It, can it, like... You have two two extremes where you you have the disposition to do the to to do the good, and then it becomes a habit for you to do the good. Can it also become uh, reversed in that way? For sure, um, the habit we call good habits virtues. We call bad habits vices. One of the things about virtues, the way that we talk about it, isn't always helpful for understanding them because we'll say like, oh, so and so has courage, so and so has prudence. But when you talk about it that way, it's almost like a thing that you can just, like, once you get it, you've got it. Mm. And I'll just put it up on my bookshelf or whatever, like, I've got it. But really, virtues and vices are relative terms. And so it's not just like you achieve the virtue and that's it, you're done. You mm. don't have to work at it mm-hmm. anymore. They're relative. So anytime you're not working toward virtue, you are working toward vice. Mm. Or anytime you're moving away from vice, right, you're moving toward virtue. So it's one of those things that we have to constantly keep up with. And one of the early chapters of the book is talking about the need to increase intensity. And this, this is the key to maintaining that virtue because you don't want to plateau or backslide. If you're backsliding, you're moving toward vice. So basically what you'd have there is a habit of virtue, but now you're cultivating these dispositions of vice. Mm. And in time, they're going to like atrophy the virtue and it'll become a habit of right. vice and maybe some lingering dispositions of mm-hmm. virtue. Mm-hmm. Just a quick insight on that is that... Um is that the reason that having a solid prayer life is so important to keeping that intensity? Because it's, it, it seems like that's one of the best ways <clears throat> to stay on that track. Because even if you're doing habitual good actions and you're kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, following all the rules and doing all the right, you're checking all the boxes, you might not be going above and beyond what you should be doing above your state in life, not just doing the bare minimum. And like you were saying, plateau, it become like start to plateau, but rather keep pressing onwards. Is, is the, is having a good prayer life the best way to be able to do that? Or is that just part of the mix, so to speak? 
Yeah, I would say both, right? The Catholic answer is always yes. <laughs> is it this or that? <laughs> yes. Um, it's part of the mix, meaning there are other things that you have to do, but I would say it's the most important. The way I structured the book is it's seven chapters, and each chapter is a different strategy for growing in virtue and explains a different aspect of virtue. Um, so by the end of it, you've got a comprehensive view of virtue and you've got seven strategies, but the sixth chapter is where prayer comes in. It really should be the first strategy. Mm. The reason it comes in with chapter six is because you need to kind of lay the groundwork before we get into grace. Mm. But really, it should be the first strategy. It should be accompanied, you know, it should accompany every other strategy as well. Why? You don't want your prayer life to get stagnant. You don't want the pursuit of virtue to get stagnant. It's easy to get lazy and think like, well, I've done enough. Um, but really, we want to be pushing ourselves, which is why I also think um, St. Therese is so helpful. I think it's chapter three where I focus on kind of like the incremental increases mm. that sometimes we think to grow in virtue, we have to do these amazing things. And how often do we really do amazing things? But really the, the quicker way to grow in virtue, I think, is to do those small things with great love mm. rather than trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to increase the intensity in terms of like, I don't know, quantity or, or what I'm doing, increase the intensity in the sense of quality, like do what you're already doing, but just do it better. Mm. And prayer is going to help us with that. God's going to give the grace to help us do it. But God's also wants us to be virtuous more than we do. Mm-hmm. So if you start to get stagnant, I think if you're praying for the virtues, you'll make sure that you have those opportunities. <laughs> yeah. So chapter one, it's entitled fake it until you make it or fake it till you make it. Um, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Cause I hadn't really thought about faking virtue, not in a dishonest way, but just like I, I want to be courageous. So I'm going to keep doing these things that would encourage and would cultivate that even though I'm not really in circumstances that call for me to be courageous in this mega sense. I'm not being called to martyrdom, but there are these smaller scenarios daily that I can do that, even though I don't. I kind of recognize that I don't have it, I'm gonna keep faking it until I actually feel like, not even feel, fake it until I get to that point. A couple of the strategies can be misunderstood, and so they need some qualifications. And so when we say fake it till you make it, you could interpret that wrongly and think like, um, oh, it's all like a charade, hmm. the pursuit of virtue. And there have been people in history, you know, ancient philosophers, contemporary people who, who basically claim that. They're like, striving for virtue makes you a hypocrite because you're trying to be something that you're not. And um, you should just be sincere and admit who you are and, and you're not virtuous and that sort of thing. That's not what the strategy is getting at. Um, thinking to make it, it's the idea that there's a sort of paradox to virtue. You want virtue, but you don't have it yet. But to become virtuous, you have to act virtuously. So it's like, well, how can I act mm-hmm. virtuously if I don't have virtue yet? The whole idea is that, yes, virtue is a habit, but a habit is formed by acts. So you have to start acting the right way before you can form the habit. Now, the reason it's not hypocrisy is the hypocrite wants to give the appearance of one thing when they actually don't mm-hmm. want it. That's not the person pursuing virtue. They want to be virtuous. But the fake it till you make it, um, I, I draw an analogy with weight training there, where with lifting weights, how do you get stronger? You have to increase either the number of reps or the amount of weight or something. If you start to decrease it, right, you're going to start losing that, that uh, muscle over time. So you have to keep pushing yourself. You have to actually break down your muscle and let it regrow stronger. You have to push yourself. You have to kind of lift things heavier than you can actually lift so that eventually you can lift them. So likewise with virtue, you have to act more virtuously than you actually are, and that's what makes you that virtuous. Mm. So 
fake it till you make it. Yeah, you fake it until you make it, but even once you've made it, there's still room to grow in virtue. So that strategy still continues um, because you're still kind of, again, faking, right? I'm, I'm acting away beyond my virtue, but with the hopes that then that will make me that virtuous. Do you think that there could be a tendency for people who have kind of the attitude of like they they figure out what they're going to do they set their eye on it and they're just going to do it the best that they can while that can be directed in a good way that also could be directed in a really negative way where they look at a virtue that they want to pursue and they're they're kind of achieve they're they're striving to achieve for that vir- to achieve that virtue so strong that they overshoot and they're actually like going past right so they're like okay well I want hope so I'm going to keep hoping and I'm going to keep hoping and then really you realize that well, yeah, you're not despairing, but you're also going way past hope and you're actually being presumptuous. So do you think, are there negative aspects to the fake it till you make it kind um, of mentality? Certainly there's, there's always that risk that you go to the other extreme and, I, and see in my own life kind of going back and forth, especially when it comes to like possession and detachment. It's mm-hmm. like, all right, um, I want to be detached from good. So let's just get rid of everything. And then it's like, well, a lot of stuff is actually good. So let me get it back. And oh, I want this now too. And then now you're at the other one and mm-hmm. keep going back mm-hmm. and forth. So I think that can happen. Um, I think understood correctly, you're not going to be doing it that way, right? If you're increasing the intensity, a virtue is going to be a rational mean. Uh, It's the most reasonable thing to do. So the vices, the extremes are going to be kind of like going beyond what's reasonable or falling short of what's reasonable. But if you are like consistently getting closer to what's reasonable, that means you're always getting closer to that virtuous mean. The way you then overshoot it in in a bad way is by becoming unreasonable in some way. So mm-hmm. either I was falling short of what's reasonable, now I'm going beyond what's reasonable. Um, so if, if you can't grasp what that reasonable mean is, then I think there's a greater danger of doing that. But if you are exercising prudence and you see where the virtue is, it shouldn't, I don't think, lead you astray. That's a good segue into what I was going to ask you next, which is in the book you uh, used, I think you used cornhole as an analogy for virtue because there's a way that you can obviously overshoot and that's you don't get points, but <clears throat> you can also, you can get things on the board that aren't quite virtue because it's not right in the hole. It's not right on the mark, but you're still getting there. And the, but the only way that you're going to get better is to keep aiming for the hole, even if you're falling way short or you're missing or you're, you know, something went wrong with your elbow and it, your you know, your beanbag goes way off to the side. You're, as long as the goal is still the hole, that's what you're, that's what you're aiming for, uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting analogy because it's really simple it's it's similar to the the arrow analogy with trying to hit the bullseye but there's the target so you might not get it right on the bullseye but trying consistently to get it right every single time is the only way that you're going to get it right every single time no it's good i think you extended the analogy even further than i did i like that whole like even when you fall short you're still getting some points mm-hmm. um i was thinking more in the terms of when i played cornell myself you know you toss it and you're like oh yeah this is the right amount and you toss it and it falls short so like all right, and you do it again, and it lands in the same exact spot. It's like, yeah, but if I throw it any harder than this, I'm going to overshoot it. And so finally you've got to throw it, and you're like, all right, this is too hard, and then it lands right in the hole. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I guess that wasn't too hard. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens sometimes with virtue, because there are these two extremes. If we don't have the virtue, we're on one of the extremes. And even Aristotle talks about this, where somebody who has the vice, we all think we're right, Right. It, it takes a lot to, of humility to recognize when we're wrong. So we think we're right. So even if we're vicious, we think we're virtuous. And we start to see the virtue as the opposite extreme. We see the virtue as the vice. Mm-hmm. And so the overshooting the target is, okay, well, I'm recognizing 
that I'm not, right? I am vicious, I'm striving for this virtue, but that virtue to me seems like an extreme. So it seems to me that mm. I'm overshooting the target. Like I'm, I'm just going for the opposite way. So for example, if somebody's lustful, right? And they want to be chased, they look at chastity, they're like, oh, that's not, that's, that's prudishness. When in fact, it's actually chastity or prudishness would be beyond that. So they have to act in a way that to them seems mm. prudish, which seems like they're overshooting mm. the target. But they're in fact hitting that virtuous mean. And then the more that they hit that virtuous mean, they start to recognize, oh, boy, this is chastity. This isn't prudishness. Prudishness is even going, right, whatever, beyond that. One of my um, favorite things that I learned in your moral theology class, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Aquinas who says that by practicing one virtue, you practice all the other virtues. Um, in the act of uh, continuing to try and and develop this one specific virtue how um as someone who's an impatient person who wants to get like i'm going to try something for a week and if i don't if i don't get it then it just it's not meant to be uh how important it is it to be patient while you're because you are practicing you're, you're attempting to uh develop this singular virtue but at the same time you're probably also developing patience um how important is it to sort of be patient with yourself as you're attempting to try and try and try and develop a specific virtue and at the same time you're developing other virtues? Yeah, praying for patience is a rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Would not recommend it. <laughs> no, actually, you've hit on a, a couple different things there. I, the more that I think about patience, the more I think it is one of the most important virtues because I think it's so closely tied to love. Mm. There's an interesting passage in the Summa where, where basically Thomas says, like, you can only have patience by grace. It's like, well, what are you talking about? There should be an acquired version of that. I don't want to get into that debate now. But the more I think about it, it's like, yeah, like, when I'm impatient with myself or with others, it seems to be a lack of love, right? The more love you have for somebody, the more patient you're willing to be with them. Maybe there are some exceptions. But, uh, like, for example, I can be very impatient with my kids, but patient with a stranger. Clearly, I love my kid more than a stranger. But maybe that's, like, the next tier or something mm. and like within that tier now it kind of resets uh, how much love and patience mm. is needed but anyway uh, yeah that connection of the virtues Aquinas says that because virtue integrates us it makes us whole it coordinates our intellect and our will and our passions our emotions all to one purpose so sin does the opposite it disintegrates us virtue integrates us so if it integrates us then they're all connected in some way and his claim is that if you're lacking one of the moral virtues you're going to lack the other ones as mm. well so I, I don't know, it's funny, like across the board, everyone says that chapter four, that's their favorite chapter, their favorite strategy. It's mine too, but it's one of those things where like just studying it, I just like thought like, oh yeah, like that makes sense. Everyone must know this. I must be the last one mm. to figure it out. And it seems like even like people who study Thomas have never really like made that connection. I guess he doesn't make it explicit, but the idea is if all the virtues are connected, then anytime you grow in one, you're growing in the others as well. Right. And I think our first instinct to grow in a virtue like patience is, well, let me work on patience. But then you find like you're not making any progress because here's the problem. I'm not patient. <laughs> I'm trying to be patient, but I'm not patient. I'm not getting anywhere. And then I get frustrated and then I am impatient and I give up. But the idea of the strategy is, okay, well, why don't you take a different tack? Mm. Maybe patience is difficult for you, but maybe justice is a little easier. Mm. So rather than thinking about it as, I gotta be patient. I gotta be patient. Think about it as like I gotta be just. What do I owe to this person right now? Mm -hmm. And maybe that makes it a little easier. And now, when you are then you know just toward that person, you're also patient. 
you're increasing your patience along with the justice. I was on one show where um, the, the, the host actually used the analogy. They said the rising tide lifts all boats. I think that's kind of a good way of expressing it there is that um, all the virtues are going to go up. The way Aquinas does it, he says it's like a hand. All of our virtues grow in proportion. When, when your hand forms, you don't have like one finger that grows all the way mm. and then another finger that grows all the way and then <laughs> another one, right? They all grow together, but they grow by proportion. So not all of your fingers are the same length. Along with connectivity of the virtues, there's a quality of the virtues. And that's kind of a misnomer. We think, oh, they'll all be equal. It's the exact opposite. He says they go by equal proportion, which is why it gets the name. But um, like whatever you struggle with most now is probably what you'll always struggle with the mm -hmm. most. And whichever virtue comes easiest will probably be, always be your easiest. But they can still all grow together, and you can use that to your advantage. I feel like, honestly, that just kind of makes me think of... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, we were talking about patient, but patience, but how patient our Lord is with us because he allows us to have, if we are, uh, I guess, more inclined to one virtue, then we can, like, he doesn't want, like what you're talking about with St. Therese too, like he doesn't want us to do this big, great thing with this other thing way out there and in like the world with these people across uh, like the country, but like he wants you to do it right here. Um, and, and I don't know, that just... I feel like that just gives so much hope because especially if you struggle with one thing, it it can really bring you down. Uh, but if, if you have that like mindset of like, okay, I know I, I'm more inclined to maybe thinking, trying to be just with someone than I can like work on these, all, all these other ones and, and still be kind of definitely moving forward because they're so connected. So I, yeah, that's just, I think that's really beautiful. That's kind of the optimist view. The pessimist view <laughs> that I'm going to take is um, if you're in a place where you're like, okay, yeah, I'm justice isn't a problem or prudence, maybe prudence isn't the, the best example, but you know, I, I, I'm really, the, forti the virtue of fortitude just comes to me like that, but I cannot get past uh, jealousy or something, right? Is it better to just say, okay, let's let's just focus on jealousy? And I, I suppose there's different ways of approaching that. Maybe you can approach it through temperance or through fortitude or something. Um, but is it better to to try to like, okay, I'm going to focus on the thing that I'm good at and kind of keep nailing that and almost in the background work on my vice? Or is it something where you're like, no, this vice needs to go. Here's the drastic measures that I'm taking to get rid of it. And I'm still going to be, you know, courageous or i'm still going to be prudent i'm still that's not really going to wane because i'm already good at that and i want to keep pursuing that but this particular thing the thing that i'm bad at is the thing that i have to focus on the most i have to devote all of my attention to that is I, do you think that that's a different way of going about it or is that just a different way of thinking about kind of the same issue no for sure i think it depends on on the circumstances and this is why there's seven strategies in there the idea isn't that you just just pick one and that's the one you go with it's that you know some of them you you use together some of them you try and you know okay maybe this is working for me maybe this one doesn't or maybe this works for me at this point in my life with this virtue but now all of a sudden it's not so i'm going to try a different attack and, and for some you know maybe it's the vice is extreme enough it's like i need to go to drastic measures here i'm like i'm cutting myself off i need an accountability partner whatever it is to make sure that i avoid this um or maybe it is you know it's not as serious but it's like man I, I, i've been working on this for so long i'm not seeing any progress i think with the the connectivity of the virtues the idea behind it is we're easily discouraged 
And if you focus on what you're already good at and improving that, right, that's going to be more encouraging to you because you're going to see kind of the positive aspect of it rather than dwelling on it, keep messing up over and over again. Um, but then you kind of look back and you say, wow, like I am a lot more patient than I used to be. I'm a lot more selfless than I used to be. Um, but yeah, to what you said, Brian, I mean, God definitely is more patient mm. with us than we are. My prayer is like, you know, I mean, like, you want me to be virtuous? Why just make me virtuous now? <laughs> we can both have what we want here. But in this mystery, um, I guess that we can learn more. Virtue is really a life life project. Mm, one of the virtues that I remember, we we didn't really cover it that much, but I remember Cutaba- Dr. Cutaback bringing it up in, um, I think in his uh, family and household class, was the virtue of, I think it was the virtue of long-suffering. And he was like, this is such a, an interesting virtue to think about because it's it's essentially the virtue of like your life like all of your life struggles all of the things that you deal with good and bad and there's kind of a virtue in dealing with all of those things in the best way possible that's also a virtue so that that's kind of encouraging to me because instead of saying i'm doing really poorly in this category so i'm a negative five but i'm doing like plus 10 in this category and kind of keeping this score you can zoom out a little bit more and say, okay, this is clearly the thing that I need to focus on and that I'm struggling with. But as a general, kind of in the the, the, the big scheme of things, I'm directing all of this towards the Lord. I'm directing all of this towards trying to make rational, habitual like actions part of my everyday life. And there's also a virtue in just doing that. Yeah, you know. long suffering. That's one of the the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Perseverance, maybe, could be another name for the virtue. And, and Aquinas says perseverance is a a sub virtue of fortitude. So it's a um, like a specialization of it. But but one of the things he says about courage, so by extension, perseverance, is that when we think of courage, we think of the person who goes out and they fight the battle or they conquer the obstacle, whatever it may be. That's certainly courage. But he says that it's more courageous to endure suffering. So we think like the long suffering mm-hmm. there. And why is that? Well, because it, it, it takes so much more of us. When you are aggressive against something, that usually means you're the stronger party. Okay. If you're the stronger party, you're probably gonna succeed. If you have to fight a battle, the battle doesn't last forever, it kind of ends. But if you're just suffering something, right? That, that implies that you're the weaker party. So there's more that's demanded of you to stand firmly in the good. But also it can just go on and on and on, right? We think of like the, the person who um, suffers from cancer or something and just goes on for years and they got to go through all their chemotherapy and this sort of thing and like that there's there's real courage or perseverance there um, the paradigm that Aquinas uses he says classically for acquired virtue everyone saw the soldier as the the icon of courage mm. but he says with the eyes of faith we see that Christ is the icon and, and really the martyr is the one who's the most courageous mm. and, and look why because they're laying down their greatest good their life for um, an even greater good, right? The, the faith witness to Christ. So they're laying down their lives for something greater than what the soldier lays themselves down for. But also like they, like the suffering comes to them and they just have to endure it. There's nothing they can do about it. They're not going to conquer it. In some ways it's going to look like it conquers them, but we know that the victory's with Christ and he rises on the third day and we'll rise as well. Hmm. I think um, one of the things with, um, I guess sort of talk talking toward what you were saying, Anthony, um, uh, just in the sense that we could, there are times when you look toward, uh, well, you were saying, are we, should I really look towards this vice that it seems like I have or the, 
rather than trying and like really trying to break this from like my daily habits. Um, when I think of that, I guess it just, especially going to Christendom, I feel like one of the biggest things that has helped me and one of the, one of the ideas that I think that I most took out of, uh, of Christendom was in your moral theology class about, um, um, freedom from freedom of excellence and rather than freedom of, um, Indifference. Indifference. I was teaching that today. Okay. Right. Okay. Cool. Uh, well, it just just because because it because the faith isn't like I mean if you read the Old Testament and and like read the Ten Commandments you uh, like just on the surface without the eyes of faith it's like oh these these rules and like the, and then you go through Leviticus and it's it's like oh these things that the Israelites have to do but um, whenever uh, I feel like. Definitely knowing, obviously it's the freedom of excellence, knowing what's good and what to strive for is, um, and being able to, I guess, like know what you're pointing for. um, That just made me think of trying to learn, I guess, I feel like once, ever since I've gotten out of Christendom, I just want to keep learning about what those virtues are and what, kind of like what the definition is so I can actually like see like this thing either in someone else or try and learn it myself was when you were going into, I guess, habits or dispositions or moral theology, I guess in general, I know you were talking about like sexual ethics and um, was it, obviously there is the part that is like, don't do this. But was there, I guess, an even more inclination to kind of be like, okay, no, but this is what you should strive for rather than just stay away from this. Yeah, I think that for whatever reason, kind of the prevailing opinion on morality today is that it's morality is just about rules, and it's just about you know you're a good person if you follow the rules, you're a bad person if you don't follow the rules, and really when Jesus and this is what John Paul II uses in his encyclical on morality, the story of the rich young man, it's a perfect illustration because the man comes to Jesus and he says, "What good must I do to have eternal life to be happy?" So his question is about, like, what do I need to do to be happy? It's not what rules I need to follow. So Jesus answers him first. He says, well, follow the commandments. So, of course, the rules are important. They're a starting point, right? You can't be moral if you don't follow the rules. But the man says, you know, I already follow these, but there's got to be something more. And Jesus says, well, there is something more, right? Sell your things, follow me, right? Be conformed to me. Um, conform yourself to Christ. That's where a true happiness is going to be. But so really, then the question of morality, as Augustine, as Aquinas understood it, as Aristotle understood it, as St. Paul understood it, it's a question of happiness. Not happiness as a feeling, but happiness as this abiding state, right? It's objective, it's abiding, it's internal, it's um, good in itself, it's something that has to be chosen, right? It's all these different things. And so I think that when we approach morality from that perspective of it's all about rules, we get so focused on the rules, sometimes we can slide into legalism, but oftentimes what we focus on is like, I want to try to just avoid these things. Well, that's good, right? We want to avoid those things as a starting point, but like, what are you replacing those bad things with? I want to avoid these bad things, and how often do we just fall into different bad mm-hmm. things? I think of the um, when Jesus casts out the demon, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, watch out or else seven more will come back in. That's, that void is there. It needs to be filled by something good. And so what Aquinas is good with in his, um, the structure of the Summa, he always starts with the virtue. He starts with a positive mm-hmm. reality. And it's only after going through the virtue that then you'll talk about the vices that are opposed to it 
And then at the end, you'll say, like, and this is the commandment that gets you started with it. But he always starts with the reality. We know that goodness is creative. Goodness is being. Evil is just a corruption of that. It's, it's a lack of being. So start with kind of the goal. What are we striving for? Now, to get there, we're going to have to stop doing those bad things. But we also have to make sure that we're replacing them with good things. Someone that I think um, <clears throat> does a really good job of explaining that exactly what you're talking about specifically with sexual ethics is Jason Everett. And a lot of his stuff, and it's it's very much based on theology of the body, but he'll talk about how in high school, most kids are taught, <clears throat> okay, like here, here are the dangers of what the field that you're entering into. There's STDs, and you don't want an unplanned pregnancy, and um, you don't want to go too far. And then especially if you're Catholic, there's sin involved. And But he's like, but, but these kids, particularly the men, never really get a, hey, if, if you want a wife, if you want someone to honor you, if you want to live a life of virtue, this is how you should protect her. This is how you should provide for her. This is what you should do. And that's so much easier to say, great, I'm going to direct my energy towards this good goal than just a whole list of don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And I think there's a couple of different reasons why that's unhelpful. Number one, especially for guys, you don't want to be told no. You don't want to be like, oh, you can't do that. Okay, on whose authority? Like, why can't I do that? This is what I think is good. I love her. I, you know, there's this whole list of things that come come out of that. So rather than just suppress that, like the excitement or the energy or whatever's going on, try to elevate it and direct it and say, no, this is actually, wouldn't it be so much better if you like just married one person and that you were faithful to this person? And yeah, it's a lot harder and that's not the way that the world works. Or And that's in, in a sense becoming untraditional, but really if if you want to strive for the highest thing that's what you should do and and kind of challenge them rather than just give them a list of negative things that they just shouldn't you know pursue because it's it's not great it's it's a very different way it's it's kind of this it's almost like the power of positive thinking like it's this whole it's this, it's entire mindset change towards pursuing something that's actually important and something that's um advantageous for you rather than just kind of staying away from things that are meh yeah jason everett's so so great at, at explaining all of that so often the way chastity as you mentioned is explained it's just this list of no's you can't do this 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 what can i do right and that question is never answered um, <laughs> yeah, how far is too far yeah, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> the perennial question of high schoolers <laughs> but the thing with chastity is like yeah there's that negative side but what about the positive side and you, you mentioned men don't like hearing no but but we also on the positive side like we want to strive for something like we like to show off we like to achieve things we want to have that so like what is that goal that i'm striving for and really chastity like the, the beauty of it is it's self-mastery right so chastity it's it's the way that we moderate our loves and affections the way in which we give ourselves to another now you can't give what you don't possess so if somebody asks mm -hmm. me for five bucks and i don't have it i can't give it to them right if somebody asks me for their time and i don't have any time i can't give it to them if somebody asks me for a ride i don't have a car i can't give them one so if somebody's asking for me, all right, in marriage, and I don't, I'm not, I don't know, I haven't possessed myself, well, then how can I give myself? Mm -hmm. So chastity is really like one of the, the most manly of virtues, I would think, because it requires that self-mastery. You really have to get that self-discipline. I want to make the best gift of myself that I can. I, if, if I want to love this person till death do us part, right, I want them to also love me. I want that respect, as you mentioned, and so I want to give them my best. And so I have to be my best. I have to have that self-control. And so it's not just a, um, you know, eliminating all these things I can't do, but like positively, like where should my energy go? How can I show love in the most loving way? And I think a, 
a really good way to think about it. Um, at least that I think a lot of men tend to, um, <clears throat> the idea tends to jive with them is thinking about either sports or something athletic. You mentioned like muscle building because it's not really when you're, when you're trying to like bulk up and put on weight or practice for a big swim meet or you're practicing for a soccer game or something, you're not thinking, Oh wow, I have to get up at six and like, oh, I can't eat this candy bar. And that might be in the back of your mind, but really the thing you're like, I want to win this game. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there and the, you actually you do have to mortify yourself in a way but usually if you like the sport or w- whatever the end goal is if you like that enough those other things don't really matter and i think that <clears throat> either through lack of education or through the culture probably multiple assaults on multiple different fronts people don't even really understand like what what there is to even be pursued either in marriage or like what is living a prudent life look like what does drinking in moderation look like is it just something that allows you to sit around with a group of people and indulge in this really interesting conversation and and enjoy the things that God has given us? Or is it something that you just go to a wedding and just drink as much as you can because it's free? Those are two very different ways of consuming alcohol, but they're, but they're entirely different. And I, I don't think there's, you know, nowadays there's really not a distinction anymore. And it's, it's very just it's it's very all centered on self indulgence and um, it's really sad. <laughs> it's really sad to see. It is. I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of the time we're driven by fear. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. Or, you know, we don't know this, we don't know that. So we're driven by fear, and so we, we find that we like something, drinking or whatever. And we're like, well, I don't know how long I'm going to have this, mm-hmm. right? I don't know how long this is going to be a thing that I can enjoy. So I just want to soak it up as much as I can now. And so maybe that's one of the reasons, but the thing that we don't understand is, yeah, you can enjoy that thing a lot, but it reaches a point where it's not enjoyable anymore, right? Once, once you're tipsy, you're not even tasting, if it's about the taste, you're not tasting it anymore. Um, even if you're having fun while you're drunk, right, the next morning you're not having fun anymore and you're like, oh, what did I do last night? What we need to understand is that all these different goods, we can enjoy them, but we actually enjoy them more when we enjoy them in moderation, because that's when they're all kind of like in their proper hierarchy. Um, like anything could be made into an idol, even friendship, mm-hmm. right? If, if you make friendship your greatest good, you're going to become overbearing to your friends. They're going to hate you. You're going to lose your friends. Um, you're going to be disappointed because really that, that final end has to be God. So anything other than that, we're trying to make this finite thing into God. If it's alcohol, if it's food, if it's friends, if it's sports, whatever it may be, only when we have things in the right order, which is what prudence helps us with, do we actually get more enjoyment out of those things, even if we're doing them less often. It's, it's like the quality of that enjoyment is mm-hmm. going to be higher. In chapter six, I think it's called <clears throat> Let Go and Let God. Um, I don't know if it's let go and let God take over or let go and let God, but um, the message of that chapter is very much centered on allowing God to work through you. That's something that I've always had a hard time either actually like let happen or at least understanding the difference between like this is what I want and I'm pursuing this because I see this as a good and here here's a list of reasons why I think this is a good thing to do. And then also trying to incorporate, okay, what about what God wants to do? Is this in conflict with his will? Like, how, how, do, how do I know if I'm cooperating? And it seems like this really intense struggle. And sometimes you'll make a decision and you have so much peace about it. And you're like, yes, that was like, 
I, I was kind of on the fence about going to Christendom because my parents went there and I thought maybe I should do something different. And then as soon as I started going there and meeting people, I was like, this is, yeah, I made a fantastic decision. Absolutely no regrets. Would do it again, 100%. And then there's other decisions you'll make and you're like, well, it worked out, I guess, but there's not the same level of like certainty that that was the right thing. So does God just bring good out of that or am I actually kind of like in conflict? Am I fighting him right now? Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's a difficult question. There's a lot going on there with kind of just spiritual direction and all that. Um, I think certainly God can bring good out of any evil. So I think that any choices we make, ultimately he can work that to the good for us. We have to be open to it. We have to be docile to it. I think somebody who has a good prayer life, is close to the sacraments, right, it, it, they'll probably be making the right decisions. But that's not to say that like every time you make a decision, like, oh, this mm. is clearly God's will. This is clearly what he wants. Sometimes you hear the saints talk about the dark night of the soul where God can be actually closest to you, but he feels furthest away. Um, he's really, um, he's a good dad, isn't he, right? Like he's the father. And, and what does a father do? Do they just provide everything for their son mm-hmm. or do they kind of challenge their son? Like, all right, you've made it to this level. Let's, let's push you a little bit further. And I think God does the same thing with us. Um, but um, the, yeah, the let go with, and let God, um, I think that we struggle too. Our culture is so individualistic. And a lot of times we approach the prayer life think in a Pelagian way, really. We think like, all right, God, I want your help, but I don't deserve your help. So let me get to this point, and then I can ask you for help. And I know that in my own life, I kind of approach it that way. And then you come, you come to the realization like, first of all, I can't get to that point without God. So I'm never going to get to that point where I can say like, okay, now I'm, I deserve your help. But also like, even if you get to that point, you still don't deserve his help, right? Or you still haven't earned it. So God just freely gives that to us right aquinas says his greatest attribute is mercy we need to ask for that mercy right from the start and so in this pursuit of virtue again prayer should always be first we don't want to say like all right i got to do my part and then once i get there then i'll start asking god for help mm. kind of like we do with other people like for other people that's fair that's just like let me do my part my, my kids when you ask them to clean up my daughter like every time it hurts herself somehow right when it's time to clean up right so she can get out of it and then she'll be like she wants her brother johnny needs to help me it's like well okay he will help you but show some good faith right like start cleaning up yourself and then he'll help you so with other people that's the way we work sometimes we project that onto god and really what he wants is ask me from the start ask me from the start like i'm willing to give you this mercy how are you going to do it without me God's grace, man. What the? It's such a, it's a, yeah, in that, in that, that idea of, of needing God's grace and trying to allow God's grace to work within you and trying to have the, or trying to figure out the desires, or you're trying to figure out your desires to kind of be in line with that. And you have, because you're, you're doing some of it, but then you also have to be passive to it. And then, I don't know. And whenever I think of it, it, it's just such an interesting thing because it almost seems like whenever we talk about following God's grace, which ultimately is is doing God's will, um, it's like this active passivity or pes- passive activity. I don't know. It, it just seems kind of, um, I mean, obviously it, 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 like in life it works out because sometimes you do just have to let God do this thing. Like, I mean, just hearing your story of coming to Christendom or going to CUA and like the doors that opened and then your book, like the door, like two days after you were like, Oh, what about someone's asking you, do you know anybody who wants to write a book? I don't know. It just seems like sometimes 
you can just allow it, but then you still have to be moving, which is just such an interesting thing to try and like teach, not teach people, but like kind of, uh, I guess, tell people from experience. Uh, just because it's so, uh, I don't know, it, I, obviously there's a certainty in, in it that God's there, but there's also this... A little kind of, abstract, you think? Yeah, yeah, and like uncertain, right. um, which can be really hard, especially now, because everyone wants, I mean, especially myself, wants, wants, wants <laughs> it certain. Yeah. yeah, so... Yeah, it's funny, sometimes I, I, I read like Jonah, and there are a couple times this happens in Scripture where, you know, Jonah, so he's preaching to the Ninevites for them to convert, and the Ninevites are like the paradigmatic, like they are the enemy of Israel, like they're just the most loathsome people, and they do convert, and it's like, God, kill me. Right? Like, <laughs> he, he did what, what, what he was supposed to do, but sometimes like, I, I can sympathize with that, it's like, all right, God, where are you taking me? Oh, you're doing all these things, Oh, just kill me. Like, I don't want to <laughs> be on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? He keeps emailing me. <laughs> no, this one's good. Um, <laughs> oh, that, that but, means there's... Okay. <laughs> well, if there's a bad one, I haven't been on it yet. <laughs> okay, there I'm it sure is. they're out there. Um, but no, like, again, like, where does he take you? You hit on a couple important things there. When you talk about that active passivity, it reminds me of... Um, with the liturgy, when we talk about active participation, mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? We think of active, we think of activity. So, like, all right, I gotta be, I gotta be an usher, and I gotta be a lector, and I gotta be a Eucharistic minister, and all this. And really, active participation for the the faithful is that uh, we, we're actively disposing ourselves to receive. Mm-hmm. And so, it's all about reception, right? God's God's the one; who, He's pure act, right? And, and so, really, we're pre- actively preparing ourselves to receive Him as best as we can. But the other thing you mentioned, I mean, this is so important when it comes to discernment. I think a lot of times, maybe this goes back to Anthony's point too, is that we, we think like God's got this plan for us. Like, here's the plan, but here's the catch. I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I've written it on a scroll. I've buried it in this field. And here's a shovel. And if you don't get it, you're going to hell. <laughs> and, and, and that's not the way it works. Um, God has placed our deepest desires within us, right? He knows us better than we know ourselves. So obviously we can go astray and we can think like, oh, this is what I really like and it's something that's bad. Obviously you can go astray. But if you're somebody, again, who's got a good prayer life, stays close to the sacraments, like those deep desires within you, like those are desires that God planted in you. Like these are pure desires. That's what he planted in you. So sometimes we can feel guilty. It's like, well, I really want to do this, but I think like I should probably do this. Well, you got to listen to that inner voice. Like, what is that thing you really want to do? Sometimes it's not the way you expect. Um, like I've told people before, you know, I ended up a teacher. It sounds kind of silly to say, but when I was young, I wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm so glad I'm not. Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then it's like, looking back on it, but in a way, I kind of am. And this is kind of like pulling back the veil a bit on teaching, but, like, as a professor... You have to act a little bit because no matter what you're feeling that day, like you've got to bring your A game. Mm-hmm. You've got to, um, you know, especially when you're teaching theology, like this is this is what's exciting. This is what it's all about. And so there's a, there's a little bit of acting there. So it's like, okay, that's funny. I had that desire, mm-hmm. but God fulfilled it in a way that I didn't expect. Um, but yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes we get afraid, like, all right, am I supposed to be a priest or married? And if I get it wrong, he's, God's just going to abandon me. He's going to hate me. Like, that's never true. Um, yes, he's planted this desire in you, and, and maybe we don't listen to it, and maybe we choose against our desire. But even then, he works with us. Even then, he's going to give us grace. Maybe it'll be harder for us than it would have been otherwise, but he doesn't abandon us. He keeps giving us the grace, and we can still become a saint through that. I mean, what God wants more than anything, 
each one of our vocation is holiness. Mm -hmm. It's to be a saint. So the question that's been plaguing my mind this entire time, <clears throat> well, actually two of them, but the first one is on the front of the book, you have, so it's a, it's a dark green cover and then you have a, a picture of a white cow. I guess it's a, maybe a bull and he has a halo, which I'm assuming is a reference to Thomas Aquinas. And he's also stepping on a snake, which I don't think I've ever seen before. I've seen the, the, the bull or the ox, I guess, because of the story of, Thomas Aquinas about his, you know, his classmate saying there's a flying ox and he goes and looks and then he says, I would rather believe an ox would fly than my friends would lie to me. And, you know, kind of makes them all feel like terrible people. Um, I've never heard that story, actually. (laughs) Well, there you go. go. Speaking (laughs) of telephone, I heard it was an elephant, not an ox. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I thought this reference was, but maybe not. Um, So is that, is is this a reference to St. Thomas Aquinas then? Yeah, yeah, you got it. So what's funny, so I didn't, I didn't pick the cover. Um, I think it's a good cover, but um, Ascension picked it. And so I saw it and it's, it's a fun game to kind of like show it to people and be like, what is this? (laughs) What does this represent? Some people are like, a holy cow? Like, isn't that, (laughs) holy cow. Isn't that what we're, (laughs) isn't that what the Israelites were worshiping and then like got in trouble for? But no, so it is an ox. Um, with the, the halos that represents Aquinas, and then crushing the snake is like crushing vice. Hmm. Okay, okay, nice. And it's so, not a huge snake, so it's it's vice, not the devil. So I'm just kidding. I don't know. I'm don't, sorry. It, sorry, 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 sorry. The picture is not ten thousand words. It's <laughs> it's just a picture. Okay, okay. Um, so on here, uh, I just had a quick follow up question about the front. It says. Uh, your title is Saintly Habits, Aquinas' Seven Simple Strategies. So is this something that you read through Aquinas and you kind of boiled down seven things that you saw him, seven points you saw him making, or were these seven things you came up with and then kind of found a basis in Thomas for the things that you came up with? Yeah, I'm not sure chicken or the egg. I think probably I had in mind, like, I got to get to seven. Maybe I had, like, like five or six at first. I was like, there's got to be another one in there. It's the theologian in (laughs) you. Yeah, exactly. But, um, no, the book itself, so... It really didn't take that long to write, and, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say that. Um, but the reason I think is because I've just been immersed in this mm-hmm. for so long. So I was going through my PhD, right, three years of, of researching it and writing my dissertation. Immediately, like as I'm doing that, I'm also teaching at a CUA. Immediately get a job. Now I'm teaching it at Christendom. And so by the time I wrote it, like it was just so fresh in my mind that I just wrote it over one winter break. Wow. Um, nice. So I think it was one of those things where, like, it had been in my mind. So I was just like, oh, yeah, Aquinas is this here, and he says this here, and, and I could just kind of put it together. And I was like, all right, we got these strategies. Like, oh, well, each strategy should be explaining some context. And so this is where you get kind of the dimension of virtue, and it all comes together. I'll never write a book again that fast, <laughs> but I'm glad I was able to do it for this time around. Are there any plans for a follow-up book? Like, do you, do you think either a part two or maybe just a book on something totally related but yet distinct? Yeah, it's funny. In the beginning, um, I had no ideas for any book, and but it seems like once I wrote this, like all of a sudden, like the ideas won't stop coming. So the hmm. two uh, next year is my sabbatical, and I want to work on one, and, and kind of like the next two books will be companions to each other. Maybe you could consider them a sequel, but but the idea is to take when, when I'm teaching virtues or when I'm talking to people about virtue or just like reading online. Like I remember there's this prominent political figure who just tweeted out, Jesus is not meek or jesus was not meek like what are you talking about like jesus himself says learn from me because i'm meek and humble of heart but i think everybody misunderstands what meekness is they think 
well, they don't know what it means. And they're like, well, it rhymes with weak. So it must mean weak. Right? What are their words? We say, I don't know what it means, but it rhymes with this one. So there, there are a number of virtues that people just misunderstand. So my next book, what I want to do is probably pick seven <laughs> virtues <laughs> yes. that are commonly misunderstood and kind of like start with a passage from scripture where, where it's talked about and then do a sort of like unpacking of that passage and then an explanation of what the virtue really mm. is and then ending with here are some more passages in scripture that reference that virtue explicitly or implicitly that you should meditate on. Mm-hmm. So I want to do one volume that's like seven virtues that are commonly misunderstood and then another that's seven vices that are commonly misunderstood. Wow. Oh, sounds go. awesome. Would those, the virtues and vices be the same? No, Or no. just kind of like these nice. seven and, these <laughs> and beautiful if they were, but um, I want to really go by like which are most commonly misunderstood so they don't yeah. always okay. align. Yeah. So like meekness would be one, hope would be another because hope mm-hmm. just sounds like wishful thinking but right. for the theological virtue, it's certain. Um, even humility gets misunderstood a lot as false humidity. Humility. Humidity, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a commonly misunderstood virtue. <laughs> rhymes with humility, so it must be humidity. Right. Yeah, we have it here in Virginia. It's kind of rampant. Yeah. But then with, with vice, you know, um, like envy gets misunderstood a lot. and so yeah. Right. I think it would be really interesting, and this isn't necessarily a book idea for you, but uh, I think that Catholics... as as long as they're fairly educated, have a decent grasp of, okay, I know what the the, the theological virtues are. Maybe I can't give a definition of them, but I've, I've got an understanding of them. Charity is pretty important. Check. And then when it comes to the cardinal virtues, I've read Joseph Pieper's book, or I've read, read Father Gregory Pine's book on prudence. So, okay, check. I think when it starts going towards more obscure virtues, a lot of Catholics either haven't read Aquinas um, or they haven't read Aristotle's works on any of them. And I think even further, which is almost more embarrassing, that when you get to the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which is almost even more obscure, it's like, okay, joy, patience, like what what are these things that they're saying? These just kind of sound like someone just sat down and rattled off a bunch of good-sounding virtues. And... Um, I've never really delved into it more. I, I think with like, you know, everyone with have your confirmation class, you come up with an acronym to remember the gifts of the Holy Spirit and you kind of go through them maybe one by one, but particularly the uh, fruits of the Holy Spirit, I think are almost even more unknown than yeah. some of the Aristotelian virtues because a lot of people have read the Nicomachean Ethics or at least have talked about the extremes. When you talk about fruits of the Holy Spirit and how that jives with the gifts and how that's how are those related to what Aquinas outlines and all of these different things, it's in, at least in my mind, it's this huge kind of gray area of like think, something I want to read more about, but it's also intimidating because there's so many of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, there's a there's a there's a book idea. Brian, why don't you get Brian, cracking? get going? Yeah. you were the theology. <laughs> you were the theology <laughs> major. We don't have time for this. Yeah, true. Sorry. Um, well, yeah, I'll, I just I was taking notes. Okay, so good, I good. I have a I have a question that might be like a it's a it's a a big. Anyway, um, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> That's what I thought. Well, the Catholic I thought answer, said, uh, yes and no. The answer is the Catholic answer is yes because. Could be both. Well, it's not a Catholic question. Oh, so. right. Okay, no, okay. Right. we're not allowed to do it. Anthony's uncle is a fraternity priest, um, and he was at the St. Thomas More Chapel last week, and I, I was able to hear his sermon. And he kind of went over something that I had never really thought about or heard about um, or been taught about, and it was sort of the three, like, three states of um, life that uh, a Catholic can have and, and should have. And 
like the first one is sort of uh, you're battling temptation, you're battling habitual sins. Um, and then the second one is uh, you've now sort of passed that state and now you're, you're living, uh, you are specifically striving for virtue. And then you have your third state where it's just kind of perfection and you're in God's will on earth. You're, you, you're living in God's grace. Uh, I guess my question is, the first two must overlap. The first two, like, it, it kind of seems as though it's not really a uh, very general thing where, okay, I'm battling temptations. I'm not working on vir- virtues right now. I'm battling temptations. And once I f- finish that, then I'm going to go into the virtuous part. Um, where does that kind of... Because if you're constantly practicing virtue you still should be going to confession to get those graces but if you're not really battling those temptations where where's the line where does it sort of where you you cross the the battling of these temptations and now you've you've reached the other state where you're uh, living virtuous life and and whatnot i think you're right that they do overlap i'm trying to i'm going to try to answer like as simply as i can because um, I, I could just go off and do a lecture right now. <laughs> um, in addition to those three stages, Aquinas will also adopt Aristotle stages of vice, incontinence, continence, mm-hmm. virtue. So, so vice is the person who's struggling with vice. Incontinence is the person who, who knows what they should do and, and they want to do it. They choose it on some level, but then they um, end up caving to their, their erroneous passions, the irrational passions. Continence is somebody who, who still has those passions that are kind of against it, but then they, they choose the good and they do it. And then the virtuous person, they've got that full harmony. So you've got that going on on the one side. You've got these other things. Now, Aquinas, you'll talk about two different sets of virtues, different types of virtues, I guess. Acquired virtues and fused virtues. And they're all virtues because virtues are perfections of our character. But at least at the outset, they're not perfections in the same sense. There's many different ways that we can mean perfect. And so I think this is going to get to your question here. That with acquired virtue, so this is acquired virtue. This is natural virtue, something that somebody's acquiring on their own, mm. so just by their own efforts. Now, I'm sure God's giving auxiliary right, things like right. that along the way, but it's not um, through the state of sanctifying grace. So you're making all these efforts. Now, that's going to be really hard to do. It's probably going to take your lifetime, but by the time you've done it, that means you've so thoroughly and deeply internalized what is the good of the different virtues? What is the good of these different activities that now you've brought together your intellect, will, and your emotions all together for one purpose? By the time you get there, he says, you're probably rarely going to feel temptation. Mm. Because for somebody to internalize the good to that degree, like what is going to tempt them? Right, to right. However, because they don't have the assistance of grace, when they do face temptation, that temptation is going to be so strong that they're probably going to cave to it. So it's, it's, it's weird. Like these virtues are strong, but at the same time, they're, they're sort of fragile. Mm. So for acquired virtues, probably sort of rare, sort of fragile. Now, then you have these infused virtues. And infused virtues are virtues that we receive as long as you're in the state of sanctifying grace. So a baptized baby has them. They just can't use them yet. Anytime you go to confession, if you were in mortal sin, now you're in the state of grace, you've got these virtues. And they're infused within us. So they're virtues, they're perfections of our character, but Aquinas is realistic because how often mm. have we had the experience of we go to confession, we confess a certain sin, and then as soon as we step out of the confessional, we're tempted by the exact same thing. Or like take an alcoholic, for right. example, right? Just because they go and confess the alcoholism doesn't mean when they come out like they're never going to desire a drink again. So what's up with that? Because for acquired virtue, it sounds like once you have it, you don't have these contrary dispositions and temptations. 
So what he says is a different sort of perfection. The first perfection is what I call like a, a perfection of, of unity or something. All, all of your powers working together for that one purpose. Um, the perfection for infused virtue is like a, a perfection of end. Because now with the assistance of grace, what you can do by those infused virtues is even greater than what you can do by the acquired virtues. In the mm -hmm. sense of what you do is now meritorious. It's now ordered toward your supernatural mm. end. So even if it's not as impressive, like maybe the acquired virtue person like saves a, a whole busload of children from a burning bus, right? That's impressive. And then the mother with infused virtue just gets her kids dressed in the morning, but she does it with charity. Right. That's more meritorious than saving mm. that busload of kids because it's done in charity. So it's done for, it's a greater perfection in that sense. So typically I think that when we're infused with these virtues, we're infused with these sort of, you know, those contrary dispositions are still there. In time, maybe our infused virtue will also develop the first kind of perfection, that perfection of harmony, where mm. we are so integrated that now we don't suffer from those temptations anymore. But even if we do, we'll have the grace to overcome them. So he says the acquired virtue, that person rarely suffers temptation, but when they do, they cave to it. The infused virtue person um, experiences temptation often, but doesn't usually cave to them mm. because they've got the assistance mm. of grace so that that might be wow. where you see the overlap yeah. there is yeah. like yeah i mean i've got the virtue i'm trying to do positive things but at the same time i'm trying to get rid of these um negative temptations and then maybe that third stage is where you finally have both perfections right. together right Fantastic. how does friendship help you build acquired virtue friendship is one of speaking of the, the sub virtues aquinas mentions it as a sub virtue of justice Friendship um, is one of the strategies I have in the book. I basically put it in the form of an accountability partner, that you want somebody who can call you out, as it were. Aristotle has his different types of friends, friendships of utility, friendships of pleasure. Those are good friendships. You know, they're real. But the friendship of virtue is the best one. So really, it's hard to find somebody like that. You want to seek that out because, you know, the friendship of pleasure is not going to tell you. They're not going to call you out because they don't, they're worried the friendship will end. That friendship of virtue, they love you, right? They, they, they see you as another self. And so if they would want that perfection for themselves, they want you to have that perfection. So even if you were to get angry at them, right, they're still willing to call you out on that to help you grow in virtue. So friendship, as one of the virtues, I guess the virtues are connected and there's some aspect to which we need that friendship. Now, maybe we think of the Desert Fathers and we think, well, you know, did they have that virtue? I think they did. When Jesus talks about, you know, to the apostles, he says, I call you my friends. Aquinas defines charity as friendship with God. But even if that sounds kind of like a, an easy way out, uh, the Desert Fathers actually did talk to each other from time to time, so they did exercise that friendship. They recognized that mm. we do have that inclination to live in society. So even though they're, they're hermits, they would actually meet wow. from time to time mm. for conversation uh, to fulfill that need. But it was just, you know, not as often as we would. <laughs> <laughs> do you? I, I feel like I was talking to you, Brian, about this not too long ago where... Uh, we mentioned that <clears throat> living the life of virtue is living a common life and how friendship, and I think Dr. Cutaback kind of iterates this a lot, is how friendship is about living together, living together in unity. So how could a hermit exercise friendship or how could a hermit, quote unquote, live in community when they're constantly alone? Now, maybe they have other hermit friends that they hang out with or meet up with once a year or something and that's enough. But I think... I want to say it's something you said that um, you were saying something along the lines of, well, maybe they've already got to the point where 
they have that true friendship and th- that's their friend that they only need to call once a year mm-hmm. or whatever. So they don't really need to cultivate it that much more. And actually, if they stayed out in the world, it would be a distraction towards their sanctity. So they're actually, they're surpa- surpassing all of us. They don't need that community in the same way that most people do because they've already lived in community and they've already like they've already figured it out. And now they're able to kind of go to that next tier of just monastic life and it's just them and god which is obviously a higher calling um now i don't know if you if you explained it as eloquently as i just did but right. um <laughs> but no, i no, think no. you said something along those lines because i think we were talking about monastic life and how does that factor into living the common life when you're alone right how, how does that add up yeah no i i do remember us talking about that that i mean yeah i, I don't know if i could actually explain it verbatim brian no no in 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 much more way that you did i I, yeah i i don't know i I just want to give you credit in case i'm completely wrong so sure sure so this is your point like a true friend (laughs) (laughs) right a true friend pushes another true friend under the bus no yeah that is it is really interesting because i mean even in then now that we were just because we were talking about virtues earlier and how we always if you plateau, that means you're kind of moving backward. Um, so I wonder if... If that's I the mean, way of moving up, like keeping that intensity, the only way to be able to continually live that virtuous life would actually be to cut yourself off from everyone else? No, no, or no, 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 no. Like, like the they would have, Yeah, I guess the opposite. Like they would, they would regularly, or not maybe semi-regularly, like once a year, whatever that ended up being with their other hermit, uh, I guess, brethren. Like they would have to kind of do that and but everyone knows it's like okay yeah well we have to go back to this like this is what we're called to so i wonder if it would be kind of just a not a going like not i'm i'm there now and i can move away from it kind of thing Hmm. um but like a almost like i can i can almost I have these true friends, so they have true friends with other hermits, but then it's like, if you're a true friend, then you don't have to be with them as much. Like, you can, but then when you're with them, it's like great to see them, and you're always mm-hmm. kind of. One thing actually that uh, is actually interesting, because Dr. Cutterback talked about it in one of his. Uh, we only know Dr. Cutterback, by the way. No, I, no, a... no, 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 sorry. No, no, no. This was, this <laughs> sorry, was just sorry. one of the. <laughs> He's got good stuff. But one of the, I'm sorry, one of the videos that he said, it was something about marriage um, and, and the friendship between a, a, a man and wife. Um, and it was, I think he was talking like at a certain point, you always, obviously you're married to this person. So you always, there's to a certain extent, you always want to be with them. And so you always want to um, kind of interact with them and everything. But then as like, once you have work and, uh, and one per either uh, like just one person is out of the house and the other person is in the house that I guess I don't know if he said if it was a sign of a true friend but the the more you grow together the more you can be like I'm with this person without actually being with them like like you almost bring them to you like it, it I think one of the thing one of his last things was like I think he's like you go back home and and your wife says oh I was thinking about you today and he goes, I know. Kind of just in this kind of like, like insinuating, like I I felt you with me kind of thing. So I wonder if that if that's almost kind of like similar. I mean, I probably yeah, probably I in a so. different sense because of I don't know. 
when you said that spouses want to be with each other all the time, I can you betrayed the fact they're in the honeymoon phase. That's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> I think there are plenty of times my wife is happy for me to leave the room. <laughs> okay, no, but no, you're definitely onto something. And I wonder if it even ties back to what we said before about um, like the proper hierarchy of goods. That when you have things in the right hierarchical order, um, you, you get more out of it. And so maybe it's the case that with these desert fathers that. I'm sure in our friendships, even our, our best friendships, it, sometimes it can be a bit of a crutch, right? And that sort of thing. Just, you know, like, oh, I need to vent to you. And really it's like, well, maybe I don't, I shouldn't be venting right now. Or, I, I don't know. So that, that could be definitely part of it is that their holiness is so high that, that they have this deeper friendship while still seeing each other less often or the fact that, you know, they still are together. You think of um, in marriage, right? And it goes through these many different phases. But in the beginning, when you're infatuated with each other, you're talking all the time. You can't get enough of talking to each other. But then... Um, like at the end toward the end of your marriage you think of like an old couple in the park where all they do is just hold hands and sit next to each other and don't say anything right. and, and I think even like um, that love that we, we see that with God as well in adoration I know mm-hmm. that me I'm, you know it's always like talking 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 oh look an hour is over but really like the greater perfection is to just be in his presence mm-hmm. right and to abide in his love so maybe there's a way in which even from a distance as you were saying, like you, you can kind of abide in the other person's love. I wonder if another part of it too, though, is like the communion of saints is real. Mm. And, you know, it's in heaven, we can't see it. So a lot of times we think like, you know, it's just kind of like t- put on top or it's something extra and all that. But I'm sure, I mean, they've got a, a huge prayer life. And so even though they're not seeing their physical friends as often, I'm sure that they're in constant communion with the saints. And those are real friendships. I think that when we get to heaven, grace perfects nature, doesn't destroy it. So when we get to heaven, or even though there's no marriage and that sort of thing, that doesn't mean you're going to love everyone equally. And you, like, you love your spouse just as much you love that like, guy like, on the street. <laughs> um, but the relationships we form here will be perfected. Mm. So that includes the relationships we form through prayer and intercession. So you know, if, if you've got um, a strong devotion to some saint and you talk to that saint more than you talk to your spouse, then I guess you'll have a closer relationship <laughs> to, to that saint than your spouse or... Um, you know, if you favor, you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where they exercise that virtue of friendship too, in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Now, now what's weird about it is for friendship, Aristotle and Aquinas will say like there has to be some, like um, some willing the good of another. They can't really will the good of the saint because they're already enjoying the, the good. Mm-hmm. They don't lack anything. But he says there's the same problem about God. You can't will mm-hmm. the good for God, but you can take delight in the good that he has. And that's the way that we will good to God. So that would work for a saint, right? You can mm. delight in the fact that they are enjoying heavenly bliss. Wow. Wow. Right on. Wow. Well, I guess one last... and if we'll I do have one more important thing to talk about, but you can go first. Okay, sounds good. Well, this would be less important. Okay, so, yeah. So, uh, I, guess, I just want to contextualize it. Uh, sure, sure. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> um, I guess it just made me think of... Uh, or, I mean, never mind. didn't really... Well, sorry. Um, at school, your favorite uh, class to teach mm. what, what would that was you say question that is because you were yeah go for it that's a good question I think I've taught eight different courses now wow the one that yeah. we were in everything's been downhill <laughs> that's why I pray to God you know, just, just kill me <laughs> Jonah vibes <laughs> sorry so the obvious answer would be moral theology because that's my expertise, and I do greatly enjoy teaching that, but sometimes I think that the 101 class might be my favorite. Right. Because on the one hand, um, it's stuff that I don't get to teach that often, so it's kind of a nice change of pace. Sometimes I can get sick of hearing myself, right, <laughs> saying the same thing. <laughs> um, 
So that's new. Like, I'm not always talking about that stuff. But also, when the freshmen come in, they're, they're just so excited about everything. And just mm-hmm. soaking everything up. And they got so many questions and all the enthusiasm. And then something happens. <laughs> it's called sophomore year. <laughs> and then you're all jaded. <laughs> no, that's not true. Relationship well, problems. Actually, it, it's interesting because, you know, I spent the first few years teaching freshmen and juniors. And actually, I've never taught sophomores. So it's always been freshmen and either juniors or seniors. And what I found is that in, in the beginning, like freshmen ask tons of questions, but they're usually somewhat superficial, right? They, they, mm-hmm. they, they haven't gone deeply into it. And so they're, they're curious about all these things. And it's like, oh, you know, it's so awesome. You're, you're excited about that. So let me tell you. But then by the time you get to juniors and seniors, there are fewer questions, but they're typically like much more insightful because mm-hmm. yeah? they've had those years now of studying it and, and connecting it between the different fields and all that. And so it's like, okay, I've been thinking about this for some time and here's what I've got. So I would say I like them both. Um, yeah, uh, well, I probably shouldn't say. I mean, there's one class I didn't like teaching. I've only taught it once. But, um, but other than that, I'd say yeah, uh, I, I like them all. Um, so right now I'm teaching a class on angels, so it's only a like, couple weeks in, but it's been going well so far. Josh Cruz, I coach soccer, so Josh Cruz is on okay. the soccer team, and he was like, oh, it's so good right now. And well, I'm glad to hear yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It, especially the first time you teach something, you're just like, man, I don't know at all. <laughs> People are taking this, and sure. um, right? Bioethics is good. It, bioethics is probably the toughest in the sense that the technologies are always developing. So you have to. I have to keep up on the science part. Mm. The theological principles those never change. Right. It's all just applying the principles to the technology. But you got to know the technology to apply them correctly. So it's like constantly like that's the course that I'm all like I'm researching the most because mm. there's just all these new things being developed all the time. So it's challenging, but it's rewarding. Um, the grace class is fun too, right. um, because grace is one of those things where people are like, oh yeah, grace. What is that? It's what we say <laughs> before meals. Nothing <laughs> about that. <laughs> I know nothing other than that. Mm. Yeah, right. But, uh, okay. but, but that's kind of cheap. So let me pick one. So I guess um, probably at the end of the day, moral theology, moral. because okay. that's, awesome. that's my expertise. Yeah. So I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I did have a. A question uh, before we close. <clears throat> I don't know if you saw that we're all drinking out of the Catholic Man Show Glen Karen glasses. Now this isn't. No, you're not. This no, isn't. There's nothing on it. Uh, well, that was, that was part of the problem. No, um, this is not a, a plug for them by any means. But uh, I did listen to your episode in which you talked to uh, one of the hosts, which I think it was Adam Minahan from the Catholic Man Show, and. Uh, I don't think Mark is as much, but Brian and I are, we listen to their show a lot and we think they're just a, a hoot to listen to. You're actually wearing one of their shirts. Um, and uh, they're, so if, for anyone listening that doesn't know anything about them, they're these two Catholic guys who own a radio station in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I think it's called St. Michael's Radio. And then they started a show uh, because they were running out of content or something. <clears throat> and uh, so it's called the Catholic man show and they've had a lot of different people on Dr. Whitmore was on, I, I want to say at least they posted it like a couple months ago, maybe two months ago, uh, three months ago. Um, and you talked about virtue, probably a lot of similar things to what we were talking about. Although obviously our, you know, our conversation was probably superior. Um, but, uh, I just wanted to, to ask you how, how did that happen? Did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? Uh, they recently also released a book through Ascension Press, I think. So was there any connection there? Um, yeah, just curious. It was basically through Ascension. Um, okay. They've got a fantastic podcast. One of the things that they said on a recent show that's just stuck with me, and so I'll share it because I just think it's so awesome, especially as, as new parents. Um, 
or as new. <laughs> what the? Congrats. Did I just prophesy? <laughs> I mean, he's a theology teacher, so it's kind of the voice of God right there. But um, So happy for you. They, they, they were talking about this tradition of every St. Joseph's Day, May 1st, like taking your son to the hardware store and buying a tool, mm-hmm. but not like a kid version tool, but like the real thing. Mm-hmm. Showing them how to use it, that's that's one aspect. But the other point is, like, then they've got this, by the time they're old enough, like, they've got this whole tool set already, and they know how to use all these tools. Like, that's awesome. That I'm, awesome. I was, like, six years behind, but I'm getting started now. Nice. <laughs> yeah. First time. Let's go. Um, but, yeah, it was it was through Ascension, so I was so happy to be on it. I hope to be on it again, and I hope to be on this show again. And... Um, but yeah, it, it, so yeah. Ascension was helping me to hook up some of the, so some of the podcasts were from me soliciting and some of them were nice. from them setting them up. Sweet. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to go to their, they do an annual camp out. Um, so I became a Patreon member a couple months ago, which is how, actually, I think that's how I got that glass, which I gave to you as a gift. And then my wife gave this to me as a gift. And then you became a Patreon member, Brian, and that's gave right. that to Mark <laughs> as a gift. So they're all gifted glasses. And I realized that we were setting up that you were the only one that doesn't have one. And you're the only one that's actually talked to any of them. <laughs> either of them. Um, so I'm planning on going in their, their camp out here uh, shortly. So hopefully uh, that'll be a, a topic of common ground to, to talk about. Hey, we had Dr. Whitmore on too. Um, I, I think that, yeah, they're, they're really funny. I, I love how down to earth they are. And they, um, they have, a pretty wide variety of guests but even just their solo episodes when it's just them it's uh it always seems pretty well prepared and it's just um it's engaging and it, it just feels real I, very similar to matt frad it just you kind of feel like you can just tune in and be like oh yeah i know exactly what he's talking about you know? yeah it was an um, easy podcast i mean he had great questions and we, we were talking before we were talking after it so nice. yeah, it was a good time yeah. yeah i've heard a lot of good things about them um there, i know a few people there's i think that at least one student that was at christendom that babysits their kids and right. um they're also right by Clear Creek, which is awesome. So I'm looking forward to going to visit the Abbey there. So um, anyway, um, yeah, I guess that wraps it up. Thank you so much, Dr. Whitmore, for coming on the Doing Virtue podcast. Um, we hope to have you on again. And um, yeah, thanks for coming out tonight. Had a great time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This is Doing Virtue. Catholic podcast. The virtue is what we do. Cheers.